All right, welcome back, everybody, to Tuesday. It's good to see you. We uh, began this semester with talking about what a biblical worldview is. And uh, the first week, Brother Rudy spoke for us on a biblical worldview on entertainment. Then we, uh, last week, looked at a biblical worldview on the sanctity of life. And tonight, we look at a biblical worldview of work and vocation. I use the word vocation specifically because there tends to be an uh, unsatisfying association with the word work, whereas vocation means more so a calling, what you've been specifically called to. And I believe as believers that we all have vocations, not jobs. It's more about what we've been called to do rather than what we um, simply who we work for, what we do in our work, things like that. So tonight, a biblical worldview of work. It is our 19th week of refuge this year on Transformed. And we are answering three questions, sometimes four each week, depending on the issue uh, and that we're discussing a biblical worldview. And on the, the questions are, number one, what's the issue? Number two, what does the Bible say about it? Number three, how ought Christians live? And if necessary, what should Christians do to expose the deeds of darkness, maybe with a flawed thinking and culture? So let's begin tonight, a biblical worldview of work. What's the issue? According to a 2015 Forbes report, more than 52% of Americans are unhappy at work. So half of you <laughs> are unhappy at work. The majority of people today find themselves between the, te- the battle of two views of work, okay? Either work means nothing to you and it seems futile or meaningless, or work can mean everything to people. It can become an idol. It can become their identity. These are two extremes. It's either meaningless and nothing or it's everything and is your identity. I want to break down each of these and discuss the view that culture has on work. For those that think that their work is meaningless and futile, we'll discuss this first. For those of you or people today that think that their work, their job, is meaningless or futile, the understanding is that more, more than likely, you simply see work as a means to an end. What I mean by that is we all need money to live, right? Yes. We need to work to get money. So work is simply to get money, and that's kind of it. It's a means to an end. This can lead to dissatisfaction at work because there's no joy in the work itself. Rather, you're just punching a timesheet. But it can also lead to dissatisfaction in the sense that we wish we had better jobs that paid more, was more fun, more around things that we enjoy doing. For many people today, there seems to be no redeeming value in the work that they do. It's simply show up, do what is expected, run out the clock, and get home. But the actual work itself seems unimportant in light of eternity. And even non-believers who would maybe reject God, reject to heaven and hell, would still find themselves in a job and go, what am I really contributing to society? I don't want to be here. This seems futile and meaningless and boring. I'd rather be doing a thousand other things. In fact, the majority of preaching today has not helped this mindset that work can be futile and meaningless. There's this unspoken assumption that The Monday through Friday work is 
in a secular box, whereas spiritual disciplines and corporate gatherings are in a sacred box. There's like this separation that's often assumed or preached between sacred and secular, but this is unbiblical. And it leads to a vocational hierarchy of what is important and what isn't, or this job brings more to society than this job, or this job is better than this job, especially in the kingdom. This can be dangerous. It's an inaccurate understanding of God's redemptive purposes in restoring his people and his creation. And it ignores the creation of the world and the role of man and woman before the fall. We'll look at that in a second. Part of the problem with thinking that work is meaningless is also because we have to deal with difficult people and difficult circumstances at work. Anybody at those? Mike, I saw you smile. <laughs> I just, okay. So yeah, difficult people, difficult circumstances. Everybody's like, everybody has the image in your head. You know the person, you know the situation, you know the circumstance. Whether you're a stay-at-home mom or you work for the government, you know that there are difficult people and there are difficult circumstances. For the stay-at-home mom, the difficult person is your husband, oftentimes. Thank you for the no amens there. We live in a fallen world, right? People are selfish. People are selfish, including the person that you see in the morning before everybody else when you look in the mirror. In the mirror. The end goal of the workforce across the world tends to be money, right? You've got CEOs, businesses, governments, all these things are about profit. And so what happens is the top guys will often manipulate, coerce, and take advantage of the lesser people in order to gain a profit. This means that for the typical worker, work can be painful. Work can be unsatisfying. Work can be stressful. There's worry about your performance. There's worry about your job security. There's worry about the worth that you have on the team or that it even brings to your life. There's worry about meaning. Is there any purpose to what I'm doing? It can seem seem mundane. Sometimes this can lead to laziness. And sometimes it can lead to overworking. Typically, though, in the bracket of those who think that work is meaningless... This typically leads to most workers becoming lazy. In other words, if people don't respect my work, if I'm not going to be treated right, I'm simply going to have a bad attitude, do the bare minimum, and get my paycheck, get out. Laziness pervades our world today. It's this mindset of I want to do nothing, but I want to be able to have whatever I want. And most of you in the generation before me who's older than me would look at my generation, the coming generation, and say, oh, yeah. They, there's no work ethic. It's, I want all the blessings and benefits of the jobs. I want the health care. I want the high pay. I want all the nice things, but don't ask me to work hard. You've got to be kidding me. There's a sense of entitlement. And there is. There is a sense of entitlement and laziness that comes with it. Then you add to these difficulties the reality of social media and television. So I, th- I think, Rudy, about, about your message, right? And, and a number of people that you mentioned are these what we would call successful people. The world looks to and thinks that they're successful and we parade these people around virtually in every home, whether it's on your social media applications or platforms, whether it's in your television, whether it's in the articles that you read. Celebrities and fame are more prevalent today than any other time simply because we have constant access to their life through social media, television articles, etc., right? I mean, look at television first. We see that the life of a celebrity or a high CEO or a person with power and authority is glorified and celebrated. 
They are put on a pedestal to be better people, have better jobs, be more important. In fact, we find ourselves in awe often at men and women and their talents and their accomplishments. But then you take social media, which has added a whole new effect to this, right? Because now you can take these power people, these famous people, these celebrities, and you can follow them. You can see what they do with their time. You can see what their clothes are, what they're wearing on a daily basis. You can see their homes. You can see their cars. And when we see this kind of lifestyle and how celebrated this success is, we begin to what? Covet. And we become more and more unsatisfied with where we are in our life. And this typically ends up leaking over directly into our work. If I had a better job, had a more fun job, if I made more money, right? And we we begin to seek this and either it'll cause us to overwork to achieve these things or it's like this, the world is falling, why do I even try? I'm never going to be there, I'm never going to be happy, I'm never going to be famous, I'm never going to have power. And often we can end up feeling like second or third class citizens. We can feel like failures. The reason we can feel like failures is because the subliminal message is that In order for you to be successful, you've got to fit this mold. Listen, I've got a wife. Is she in here? She is. She's changing a diaper. I've got a wife who loves Pinterest. And it makes me nervous every time that application is open. Right? All right, most of the women in here know what I'm talking about. Most of you men who have spouses who look at Pinterest, (laughs) you've got the remodeled bathrooms, and you've got the the living room floor plans, and the ideas for what you want the garage to look like. And meanwhile, I'm kind of looking at the corner of my eye going, ka-ching, 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 ka-ching. There's this this, uh, obsession, uh, right, right or wrong, with kind of how things can become better. And what's, what's told to us through social media applications, and when you hear these celebrities and people in power, they have this, this thing that they tell you that's really beautiful. You can have all of this, Gavin. You can be what you want to be. Just put your mind to it. Don't settle for less than your dreams. The problem with this is that we are so selfish. Not everybody can be an NBA professional basketball player. In fact, if everybody were to achieve their dreams of, dreams of being that kind of person... The moment that that NBA player needed somebody to come fix the toilet, he'd be in a lot of trouble. He's dependent on a plumber, right? So you have these issues with be what you want to be, follow your dreams. And it's just, it's, it's, a, it's a devastating worldview. This level of fortune and fame is not out of reach, they'll tell you. But what is really being said is that this is a successful life. Don't settle for anything less. This is what you're to strive for. Don't settle and don't stop striving until you achieve it. And what happens is this makes the normal plumbing job or teacher or lunch lady or janitor or coach look like they are simply settling. Work can become meaningless. It can become futile. Now the other danger is that of work becoming everything. For people who are what culture would define as successful, or even those who have a strong desire to pursue this kind of success, work becomes everything. It becomes idolatry. We begin to overcompensate for laziness. We become workaholics. We're always looking 
for the next job opportunity, the next pay raise, the next promotion, a bigger audience, more applause, more appreciation, more authority over more people, more followers, more money, nicer cars, more vacations, a bigger home, a better reputation. This mentality of, I could, I could do all the things that I wanted to do. I could be satisfied if I just had more. So I'm going to do whatever's necessary so that I can attain it. People who live in this realm, though, don't realize that they are worshiping at the altar of their careers. They realize this only when they've looked up and seen all of the unnecessary sacrifices that they've made. Most people with this kind of fortune, this kind of fame, this kind of drive and overworking tend to have broken marriages, tend to have no relationship with their children. They have broken friendships or few friendships. They have mental and physical health issues. They lack purpose because nothing is ever enough. And to continue this craving of purpose and acceptance, nothing becomes sacred, meaning this. Nothing is too valuable in this realm to sacrifice. I'm willing to do whatever is necessary so that I may gain fill in the blank. The sad reality is that there is no top of the mountain here. Every time you increase in power, fortune, or fame, it does not satisfy like it promised it would. You're left empty and everything that you had was truly, that was truly valuable, like your marriage or your children or your friends or your health, have more than likely at this point all been lost. And ironically, again, to Forbes Research, which is one of the leading, obviously, business organizations, it shows us that CEOs are depressed at double the rate of the general public. Everything you could possibly imagine, and yet they're more discontent. They're more depressed. Forbes chimes in on why this may be, saying, number one, the competition can be wearying. Number two, working all the time doesn't allow them to focus on simple things. Number three, they can feel detached from their former selves. Four, privilege may make them less resilient. Five, the industry itself, the competition can end up just tearing them down. Or six, their values begin to change over time. You see, once you've made one compromise to get ahead, you're willing to make a second. And then the third one becomes easier. And the fourth one becomes easier. Before you know it, you've got all this that you've gained. You're looking back, you don't even recognize who you are. Now, culture has a lot to say about our work. Our value and contribution to society is greatly associated with our work in today's culture. So how important you are as a person, your value and your contribution in a culture's mindset is greatly associated with what you do for work. In culture, there's a hierarchy. There's judgment for those who aren't doing enough or aren't working hard enough. There's covetousness for those who don't have enough. There's competition to get ahead. But these are all unbiblical views of work. And frankly, this isn't just among non-believers. Believers struggle to find work worth in their 9 to 5 Monday through Friday jobs. Probably many of you here today struggle to find worth in what you do Monday through Friday. Christians can become plagued with questions about their worth at their work. They're plagued with thoughts that their jobs are less spiritual or don't matter eternally. They're plagued with dissatisfaction and discontent. They're plagued with ethical issues and moral dilemmas of how to handle situations at work. They're plagued with wondering if they have purpose, wondering if they're wasting years in a cubicle or a kitchen or a garage or a car. 
In fact, many people question if what they are doing is indeed what they are called to do. Hopefully, I've resonated with some of you. I've tried to do a broad paintbrush across what we see work today as being in the culture, its value, and kind of some of the false views and issues that can come along with these types of things. That's, that's what the issue is. So let's, let's look at what the Bible says about work, about vocation. I found myself in this study uh, to see that the Bible is exhaustive about vocation and work. Exhaustive. There's a lot to say here. We don't have enough time tonight to say everything, so I want to do my best to highlight several key areas. So I said we're going to begin in Genesis. If you skim Genesis 1, what you find is we see a creative God who is a working God, who has created, who looks at what He has made every time He made something, He affirms His work, and then He rests. Let's just notice that again. God creates. He's working. He looks and reflects on what He's done. He affirms His work that it is good. And when He has completed His work, He what? Rests. If you flip over to Genesis chapter 2, we're going to pick up and read in verse 5. Verse 5 through 8 says something interesting. It says, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain in the land, there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. All right. So notice a few things here. Notice that God says that no man was there to work the face of the ground. So what did he do? He formed man. As Genesis 1 tells us, he creates man in the image of the created, creative working God. Now look at Genesis chapter 2.15. And notice that the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So here we see that God delegated the keeping of his creation to man. Not his sovereign authority over it. But he delegated the subduing and having dominion over the birds and the animals to man. God delegated work to man. God gave Adam work. So listen, you ready? God created work. And I want you to notice something. The work was created before the fall. You notice that? Work was not a result of the fall. It was part of God's perfect plan. In fact, before he made man, he looked and he noticed there's no one to work the ground. Now why does God need anybody to work? He just created this. But God is a God who receives glory through using means, namely people. He makes image bearers. He gets glory by making man to tend the ground to work. And this is a reflection of our working creative God. Now flip back to Genesis chapter 1, and I want you to look at verse 26 to 28. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So here we have, verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, 
Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. All right. So here we have this. Man was created to work the ground, to have dominion over all that God had created, to subdue the earth, and to be fruitful and multiply. Now you guys have heard me talk about being fruitful and multiply dozens of times. This gospel command to make image bearers, fill the earth. You see the New Testament command of this when Jesus, before he ascends, says, go and make disciples. You have this, he, he gives the same command to Abram. He gives the command to Noah, be fruitful and multiply. But we have often overlooked a very important part of this mandate that God gives when he says, be fruitful, multiply. We've often assumed that both of these words, both fruitful and multiply, simply mean to reproduce. And indeed, it does, specifically the multiply. But I want you to notice the word fruitful tonight. The word fruitful in Hebrew refers to procreativity and productivity. So notice this, that part of the gospel command given to Adam and Eve and Eve in the beginning was given to us not just to make more image bearers, but also to be productive as image bearers. To rule and to subdue the earth and to have dominion. To work God's earth. To subdue it. To create. This is us acting in the very image of a working creative God. So here in the very beginning of the word of God, the very beginning of creation, we see that man was made to work. And his work was crucial to his identity as an image bearer. The fall in Genesis 3 did not make work bad. Okay? When Adam and Eve sinned, it did not make work bad. Work is not a bad thing. What it did is it made work difficult. <laughs> it stained work. If you read Genesis 3 and the repercussions of their actions, specifically given to Adam, you see that this work now brings pain. Now our work is surrounded by thorns and thistles. This goes beyond one commentator said, beyond just like AJ with his landscape business and Rudy with his landscape business having to pull out weeds and you get pricked by a thorn and things like that. This, this, is, this is Beth working at the school. The thorns and thistles of people and ungrateful people working around her and, and having to slave away in the, the sweat that comes from it. Okay, So thorns and thistles go beyond just the work of t- tilling the ground. But the fall did not create work. Nor did the fall end it. Work is essential to who we are in Christ. Now before we look at what the Bible says about how we ought to work, I want us to notice one more person who gives us a great example of this. Christ. Jesus was fully God. He was fully man. He came to seek and save the lost. He came on mission. He was sent to die. He was sent to seek and save the lost. He had hands down the most important vocational calling of anyone ever born on the face of the earth. Can we all agree? Jesus had the most important. If there is a hierarchy of work, Jesus was the most crucial calling. And why? Because if Jesus didn't fulfill his calling, if he would have failed at his mission, there'd be no hope and salvation for anybody else. Then work would be very futile. It would be very meaningless. So if Jesus had the most important calling and vocation, 
simply to save mankind and redeem and restore people back to God, you would think that Jesus would come and not waste any time, right? That would be the assumption there, that he would, as Paul says in Ephesians 5, make the best use of the time or redeem the time because the days are evil. I mean, clearly Jesus would have no time for earthly things as he was setting up his eternal kingdom and set to preach and heal and save sinners. Yet, what do we see in Jesus' life? Jesus' public ministry of these specific things, according to his vocational calling of saving the world, didn't begin till about what age? Around the age of 30. And in the Gospel of Mark, this is amazing. This is really cool. In the Gospel of Mark, we're able to get a glimpse into Jesus' life before his public ministry. We don't know all the details from his childhood to the beginning of his ministry, but we have a a couple glimpses. And in Mark chapter 6, we see a little bit of a glimpse. What happens in Mark 6 is Jesus is coming into his hometown of Nazareth, and he begins to teach. Now, we see in Mark 6 that this was new for those in his hometown. We see this because in verse 3 of Mark chapter 6, it says this. Those in his hometown said, is this not the carpenter? The son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon are not his sisters here with us? And it says they took offense at him. In other words, his teaching was surprising to those who knew him growing up. They didn't know him as a prophet. They didn't know him as a teacher. What did they know him as? A carpenter. A carpenter. Now, does this mean that Jesus wasted his first 30 years on earth? Would we dare say that Jesus, who is the sovereign God, and in John 17 says he fulfilled what God had called him to do, would we dare say that Jesus was wasting time, that his work as a carpenter was meaningless or futile? No. Would we think that Jesus would have the mentality that it was meaningless or futile, or that he was wasting time, or that he was punching in a clock? Do you think Jesus was grumbling and complaining? Do you think he was just seeking to get home to do things he wanted to do? Were his years of carpentry a waste? Was God sovereign over that vocation? Tom Nelson has a great quote about this. He says, The fact that the incarnate Son of God spent so much time working with his hands in a carpenter shop speaks to the centrality and importance of work. Remember, Jesus is called the second what? The second Adam. Tom Nelson says this. Jesus honored his heavenly father both in the carpentry shop and on the cross. Killer. John 17. I mentioned it before. says he, he has fulfilled the work that the father sent him to do. This has to refer not only to the ministry of his healing and teaching in the cross but truly his entire life. If you look at Psalm, every one of our days, Psalm 139, are numbered before there are yet what? One of them. Do you think that wasn't true for Jesus? His years of being a carpenter were no waste. And in John 17, he says, I finished the work you sent me to do. Before he's even on the cross, he's not just referring to his healing, his teaching, his, uh, his miracles, and his going to the cross. It's his whole life. He succeeded in doing all that God wanted him to do. God could have, listen, you do understand, God could have sent Jesus as a 30-year-old. But he sent him as a baby. And he grew as a child. And a teenager. And he worked. 
And he contributed to his town and society. And people in his town knew him as a carpenter. Now, if we were created to work, as we see in Genesis, and if this is essential to our identity as image bearers, and if it is essential in the second Adam, Christ, who is a carpenter, meaning it would be essential to our identity in Christ, then we should ask the question now, what does the Bible say about the worth and purpose of our work? What does the Bible say about how we ought to work? I want to answer both these questions. Number one, what does the Bible say about the worth and purpose of our work? We just showed that our most foundational purpose of work is to fulfill the command that God has given us. Recognizing that he created us to work. If you think about how God provides for us, he does so through the means of people and their work. What's part of the Lord's prayer? Give us this day our daily what? Bread. Anybody go to the grocery store today? Okay, Amy, called out, nailed it. First time I've said your name here. Sweet. All right, Amy, the food that you ate, that you bought, was a result of buying them from grocers who work at a grocery store that purchased their food from farmers who worked the fields, who dug out the cro- their crops through machinery that was engineered, put together in a supply line in a building that was built by architects and contractors, et cetera, et cetera. The list can go on and on and on. You see that God answers the prayer of giving us our daily food because he doesn't pour manna from heaven anymore, right? He does so through the means of ordinary jobs like Jesus' job as a carpenter. There are clearly, this shows us that there's no mundane job in the realm of what is contributing to the economy and the good of society and that we can do it for the glory of God and that we can be a part of answering the prayers that Jesus told us to pray Give us this day our daily bread. Now, it is worth noting, I don't want this to be just assumed. Obviously, there are clearly immoral businesses and organizations that do not contribute to society. If you look at the $97 billion pornography industry, we do not need that $97 billion there. That is not building up the economy. If you look at abortion clinics, if you look at gambling, Dover Downs is a perfect example, right? Things alike. I'm not talking about these things. We must, we must remember that God is not destroying this earth. He's making it new. God is in the business of restoring things and redeeming things. So we are contributing each day to God's restoration of His creation. We're subduing the earth. We're having dominion over it. We're being creative image bearers, working diligently to be fruitful and multiply. I don't have time tonight to talk about how our work better society further, the cultural mandate. There's plenty of scriptures and books on that. That will be part of our questions of small groups. For time's sake, I need to go on. What's another purpose of our work? Well, Psalm chapter 90, verse 16 through 17 says, Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children, speaking to the Lord. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. So we we see here in these two verses that God reveals his work and his glorious power in the work of our hands. If If indeed we are bearers of his image as a worker, then when we work for Christ, when we work for God, he reveals his work and power through us. If you remember... We began in Genesis. What happened? God worked. He created. 
He reflected and looked upon his work, and what did he say? It is good. If we're created in the image of God, and God is revealing his work and power through us, Psalm 90 says, in the work of our hands, then what should happen is we should work, then reflect on our work and be able to say what? It is good. This is at the heart of a purpose that you find and worth that you find in your work. The sad reality is, is that most people today, most even believers, would look at their mundane, what they would call meaningless jobs, and they are not. We're going to talk about that in a second. And they don't reflect. They're just trying to get out. One of the reasons they don't reflect is because they know they're not going to reflect and go, it is good. Can you look in the mirror at the end of the day after you've worked your job and say, God has revealed his work and his glorious power through the work of my hands today. That's one of the purposes of how we're to work. It's where we find worth in our work as image bearers. How about another purpose? Another uh, worth that is attributed to work. Ephesians 4.28 tells us to labor, doing honest work with our hands so that we may have something to share with anyone in need. We mentioned this two years ago or a year ago when we were going through Ephesians at Refuge. Here we see that part of the purpose for us to work is so that we can share with our brothers and sisters in Christ who may be in need. Amen? Paul discusses this further in 2 Corinthians 8 when he says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, he's going to refer to their work and to them giving. And I want you to notice that Paul says, in a severe test of affliction, which would be thorns and thistles. This would be consequence of the fall. It says their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty. Okay, so, wow, talk about thorns and thistles. We've got a severe test of affliction, and they have extreme poverty, yet an abundance of joy. That's some image bearers right there. And what has happened is this has overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Verse 5 says, This not as we expected, but they they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Verse 7 says, Paul says to the Corinthian church, As you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace of giving, Also, so one of the reasons we work, regardless of affliction, regardless of the thorns and thistles, is so that we can grow in sanctification in the grace of giving as well. It's part of your sanctification, amen? Another purpose, reason we work, and where we can find worth, Proverbs 12, 11, says that those who work their land will have abundant food, but those who chase fantasies have no sense. Let me read that again. And, and the generation above me would love to say this to my generation, the generation below me, the generation of entitlement and laziness, Proverbs twelve eleven. Those who work their land will have abundant food. Those who chase fantasies have no sense. The fact that work is a means to provide for us and our family is a biblical reality. It is one of the reasons we work. In fact, in a biblical understanding of diligence, Paul says to Timothy in his pastoral letter, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 6, he tells Timothy, the hard-working farmer should be the first to receive a share of crops. There is something to be said about purpose being providing for your family 
and for yourself. There are plenty more examples. For the time that we have, we're going to move on to the next question. There's one more uh, purpose and worth of our work that I will express at the end when we get to these three things right here. That's what the Bible tells us about the purpose and worth we have in work. But what does the Bible tell us about how we ought to work? Right? How should we work? Well, Psalm 127, verse 1 through 2, tells us, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. You talk about work being meaningless and futile. Look what verse 2 says. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest eating the bread of anxious toil, because he gives to his beloved sleep. What this means is we see here that there's a work of submission to the Lord and working, clinging to his resources for his purposes, according to his power and his strength. And when we do this, we're not working in vain. But where our work becomes meaningless is when we work according to our own, our own resources and for our own purposes. We ought to work as on the Lord using his resources for his purposes. Next, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 1 through 2. Paul says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. This shows us that our work is to steward the mysteries of God, and when we are found faithful and trustworthy, and to be good stewards of our work, this is how men will regard us. We're to be faithful. We're to see ourselves as stewarding the mysteries of God. How about Philippians chapter 2? This is how we ought to work. It says that we're to do all things without grumbling or complaining, or questioning is the word there. Any grumblers? Questioners of your work, you don't have to put your hand up. Yeah, I've been there too. Ephesians 5 says, how about this? How about how you ought to work? Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude, crude joking come out of your mouth. Instead, let there be thanksgiving. Isn't it crazy how the workplace can be a place of crude speech and jesting and joking and foul language? The Bible tells us we're not to participate in that. How about 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 4, that everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. We're to have a spirit of thanksgiving rather than grumbling and complaining. If I were to take a poll about the sovereignty of God, my belief is that the majority of people in here would truly believe that God is sovereign over all things. Everything on the earth. We could list dozens of scriptures that talk about this. We've talked about it a number of times here. You believe that there's no maverick molecule in all the universe. There's nothing on the earth in which God does not say, mine is the famous quote. We'd all agree, for the most part, I believe that God is sovereign over all things. Think back to Psalm 139. Not a single day, right, has come into being without God knowing that day, determining that day. But what happens is we can often categorize this into different compartments. Meaning, we can complain as if he's not in control of where we're working. We can complain as if he's not in control of our pay. We can complain as if we don't believe that God is sovereign over what we need and what he is going to provide. Look, if he is sovereign, then he is sovereign over where you're working today. Do you know that? Therefore, if God is sovereign over where you are working today, he expects you to work diligently as unto the Lord. Not grumbling, 
not jesting, not having crude talk, but rather being a light, fulfilling your purpose as an image bearer of thanksgiving, looking in the mirror and saying, it is good, the work that I did today. Because here's the truth. God will move you from your job when and if he wants to move you. What what confidence and trust and peace. I mean, this is why the sovereignty of God is my favorite thing about God. Total peace. Total trust. I don't have to fret as if I'm in control of it. And this is why we can rest. Because the world doesn't fall apart if you sleep for eight hours. Your job doesn't fall apart if you sleep for eight hours. This is why at the church membership class that we have, I look at the people when they come to membership and say, we expect you to tithe because we want you to experience the joy of God. But frankly, we don't need your money. We don't. The church does not exist today on South Little Creek Road because you're giving money. It exists because God has called it to exist today. And you could give a million dollars tomorrow, and if God didn't want the building to exist, it wouldn't exist. He's sovereign over all things. This is especially important when it comes to our work. I want to pause here and notice several things, okay? Because one of the biggest problems with our vocation, our work today, is that we're confused. This is one of, this is one of the main points of my message tonight, so please hear this. We can be confused about what our primary vocations are. In Matthew 22, Jesus reveals to us the greatest commandment, which is what? You shall what? Love the Lord your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your what? Your neighbor as yourself. There's a purposeful order here. It covers the first four of the Ten Commandments, the last six. The law is fulfilled in this. First is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, strength. Second is to love our neighbor as ourselves. Our first and primary vocation or calling, listen to me, our first and primary vocation or calling on this planet is to love and serve God. That, if you're going, what is God's will for my life? That's it. That's your calling. That's your vocation. If everything else fails but you get that right, you've had a successful life. And by the way, far more successful life than the majority of the people that you see on television or magazines. That's a successful life. Amen. This means that your primary vocation is to be a child of God. You're to be holy, Peter says, as he is holy. We are called to this, Peter tells us. Paul continues in Ephesians 4, verse 1, and says, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Notice this. This is vocational speaking, calling, what you're to do with your life, walking in the way. The word the way all through the Old Testament and the New Testament has incredible connotations towards how we work. And here, Paul spends the first three chapters of Ephesians talking about who you are in Christ. This being your calling. And he begins chapter 4 with a transition verse saying, Now walk in a manner worthy of this calling. It's the most important vocation you have. He elaborates in Galatians 5 that we do this by what? Keeping in step with the Spirit. This is your primary vocation. The majority of your energy and time and thoughts should go towards being a child of God and stewarding that and walking in a manner worthy of that. 
Nothing else in this world is more important. And here's the thing. That's where your identity is. That's crucial. But God has also given us other vocations and callings. And I'm not yet to our nine to five jobs. There are vocations that he's called to us after being a child of God that are more important than your work. Because the second of the greatest commandment is what? To love your neighbor as yourself. God has called us to relationships with him and then others. So what does this mean? Let me put this into what I mean for Dave Aubrey. It means that Dave Aubrey's main calling before he's a pastor is to be a child of God. And everything that the Bible says that that requires of me. Secondly, you want to know what my second primary vocation is after that? Most important vocation, calling to be a husband to Abigail. It's my second most important calling. Raise the roof, baby. That's what she's doing back there. My third most important vocation, being a father to Charlotte. I haven't got to my pastor yet, right? My next most important vocational calling, being a brother in Christ to you guys. All of this before I'm a pastor. Now, this is huge. I want you to understand this. I am all of those things before I am a pastor. Being a pastor is my job, but it is not my primary job. Not even close And this is the problem with today, that many of us are frustrated with our jobs or wondering why God has called us to do specific things or what he is calling us to do. We're trying to figure out what vocation we're supposed to be doing. All the while, we may be failing at our primary vocation of being a child of God, a God neglecting to be holy and abide in God, not walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called by God, and we have other gods in our life, and then we're consumed with a desire for purpose and are discontent in our job, And we're failing at our marriages. And we're failing failing at being parents. And we're failing at being godly brothers and sisters in Christ. This reveals that we crave purpose, power, position, and money from things that are not God. And what this means is this. It means that truly we find our identity in almost anything but our relationships in God. And this is totally anti-gospel. It goes completely against the greatest commandment. Not only this, but you may be so caught up in this that you are are failing in the, the calling of serving your church. When I say brothers and sisters in Christ, look at all the one another commands in Scripture. When we're so consumed with our day-to-day vocations and power and fame and authority... We're neglecting dozens of one another's and commands of how we are to live and act towards one another in Christ. And, and by the way, if we do this in our one or two class here. The body and us participating in the body, like Ephesians 4 says, is crucial for our sanctification together so that the body may be built up and grow in love. When it comes to your vocation, you must keep primary things primary. You must keep primary things primary. Your ability to have peace and purpose is directly related to your understanding of your primary vocations. If you want to find purpose in your job, be successful at your workplace, make sure you are a good spouse, a good parent, a faithful brother or sister in Christ. And if you're struggling to do that within your relationships, make sure you're being faithful as a child of God. 
Because chances are something's jacked up there. Man, when, when, I, when I read this and I'm studying this and I'm reading this and I'm writing this, I'm going, and Abby, I'm sorry. I feel like every time I take a step forward in ministry, I'm neglecting my wife and my daughter. I'm so consumed with working and pouring myself out in my vocation that I'm ignoring a vocation that's more important. I publicly apologize. I was convicted, seriously. Enough to move me to tears, Abigail. And if you guys see me being a total butthole, be a good friend, as is your vocation, and tell me. Say, listen, spend time with your wife. Spend time with your daughter. Take care of your home. Get in the Word. Sleep. All those things sound so awesome. Those are our primary vocations. And here's, here's the problem. The world tells us that if we do these things, it's, it's a cop-out and we're being lazy. That's such a false mentality. God is sovereign over calling us to these things. Be a child of God. Be a faithful husband and wife. Be a good mother or father. Be an excellent friend, loving and encouraging one another as long as called a day. Hebrews 10 says, all the more as the days are evil. All the more so. Because here's the reality. If I stand before God on judgment day, and I give him my resume of all the things that I did at Cornerstone Church and First Southern, implemented this, all that kind of stuff. Look at this, look at this, look at this, look at this. And I have a miserable wife that I never took care of. I got a daughter who doesn't know me. And my relationship with God is totally fake. I'm a failure. So why on earth do we, myself included, spend so much time trying to be successful in the world's eyes by making it and arriving here and neglecting the primary vocations and callings God has called us to? And by the way, one of the reasons we're so dissatisfied and lack peace and lack joy here is because we're robbing here. This can't give you joy. This can't give you peace. If this is your God, it will never satisfy. This absolutely, biblically, God-given does. And we have this right. Then you can change the way you think about work. Now I can say, I, at the end of the day, I want to be salt and light today. At the end of the day, I want to look at my work and say it was good. I want to notice, I'm on a supply line right now making machinery. Praise God, this machine is going to be used to make a seatbelt that's going to save somebody's life, that's contributing to society. I'm adding, I'm making the economy better, I'm making society better. I can go home, say, I've done a good job. I've represented the work of God, His working and His glorious power through the work of my hands today. I'm proud of that. Glory to God. I'm going to go home and spend time with my wife and my daughter. I'm going to love them. I'm going to have dinner with them. I'm going to laugh at them. I'm going to encourage them. I'm going to go to bed early, give my body rest because the Lord rested, Right? I'm going to feed myself with the word of God when I wake up. I'm going to meditate on the word of God day and night. I'm going to keep in step with the spirit. This is your vocation. All right. Colossians chapter 3. Why don't you turn there with me? It's worth noting how similar the word vocation and vacation are, isn't it? Many people ignore vocations and they live like life is a vacation because they believe that their best life is now. 
and that is futile. We know our best life comes later. There's a number of different callings and vocations that we see in Colossians 3 that shows us how we ought to work that I want to note before we move on to how we ought to live and we finish this up. Colossians 3, verse 18, it says, Wives, submit to your husbands. There's, there's a vocation. As is fitting in the Lord. You see, you see what happens here? That's the greatest commandment. Submit to your husband, the one another, as what? As is fitting the Lord. The Lord's in control. So I'm loving the Lord, my God, first, and then I'm loving my neighbor as myself. Then it turns it right around. Husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. Now we see children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Now we get to work. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Wow. Jesus warns us. It gives us comfort first, then it gives us a warning. In Matthew chapter 6, Beginning in verse 19, it says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Verse 24 says, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and what? Money. Or how about verse 31? Hey, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? The Gentiles seek after all these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What is he saying? What are we going to eat? What are we going to do? How are we going to close? We've got to work. We've got to provide. We've got to find these things. And, G- and Jesus is saying, your primary vocation is the Lord. Seek first the Lord, your primary vocation, and all of these things will be added to you. Then he says, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Amen. (laughs) Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And then the warning in Matthew 16, verse 26, where Jesus says, are you ready? You know it. Let it sink in. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? At the end of your life, you will not stand before God, look at your life wishing you had more money, or more power, or more fame, or better jobs. You will care very little about what earthly vocation you had that can provide such things. Rather, you will be most concerned with your faithfulness to the Lord, your obedience to Him as a child of God, and the relationship vocations that He's called to you as a husband, a wife, a brother, a sister, a father, a mother, a saint. No man is a success who has gained the world, yet lost his marriage. No man is a success who has gained the world and lost his friends. No man is a success who has gained the world and lost his soul. Culture gets that wrong. 